So this is part three in our series of conversations about the question we have been considering is, is it a sin to be gay? We're on week three right now. We're going to be considering today, what does the Bible say in the New Testament about homosexuality? Then next week, we'll wrap this all up, and it'll be our wrap-up for the year as well, where we'll be talking about uh, the question, how do we love? Because I think everyone is pretty much in agreement, we should love people. Loving sounds like a good idea. But I think that much of the controversy is, how do we love? How do we love people that are in this lifestyle in a a Christ-like way? And so we're going to really be talking a lot about practical ministry questions. Just as a, by way of a quick review of the two major views that we're going to be kind of doing point and counterpoint throughout our presentation today. So what I've been calling the historic, traditional Christian position is the view that homosexuality is one of thousands of manifestations of the flesh or the Adamic nature, the sin nature, whatever you want to call it. And it must be crucified like any other manifestation of the flesh, such as gluttony, gossip, or adultery. It's just a few examples of that. And it is the position of this church that we hold to the historic traditional position on uh, marriage and on sexuality. Now, the second view is what I've been calling the revisionist view. And this is represented by Matthew Vines in the clips that we watched last week. And the revisionist view is that the biblical passages that seem to condemn homosexuality have either been mistranslated, misinterpreted, or misunderstood. And this is the view that their viewpoint advocates for. So when you interact with these people, um, if they have a Christian background of any kind or they have reverence for scripture, essentially what they're trying to argue is that they actually have a more excellent understanding of the scriptures. And so you need to understand that they're not arguing for a secular position. They're not arguing for an atheistic position. And this is part of what makes this, this conversation incredibly confusing because many of them are now even calling themselves evangelicals. And so we talked to the first week about this new designation called progressive evangelicals. We talked about Matthew Vines and Jen Hatmaker as being two very prominent people representing that point of view. So, you know, when you're out and about and you're looking for a church, now one of the things that has to be on your radar isn't just, does this church affirm the Trinity? Does this church affirm the traditional view of the atonement? Now you've got to delve into, do they have any statements on their website about marriage? Because that's going to tell you something about their version of the Bible and what they understand to be part of the historic Christian faith. So we're going to now look at a survey of the biblical data. And again, last time we did the Old Testament. So this time we're going to go right into the New Testament. And we're going to start off by looking at the ministry of Jesus. Now we're going to again go through first the revisionist point of view and then the traditional point of view. So the revisionist will say about the ministry of Jesus, something like this. And I got this great quote from Jimmy Carter, our former president 
a Sunday school teacher. Jesus never said a word about homosexuality. In all of his teachings about multiple things, he never said that gay people should be condemned. I personally think it is very fine for gay people to be married in civil ceremonies. This is like the most common TV argument. If you see a debate on television about the homosexual issue, it's almost always some version of this argument. This is very common. Is Jesus never condemned it? He never condemned homosexuality or same-sex marriage. Therefore, we shouldn't either. And along with that, sometimes they'll say, Jesus told us to love everyone. But again, the question is, is how do we love? This is a very important question. But there we have the traditional response to this Jesus never condemned it argument. I think what's important is to set the context in Matthew chapter 19. This is sort of the foundational passage that you always want to point people to. The two most important passages on this issue are Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Matthew 19. If you only have those two passages, you have a really good start on this conversation. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? What passage is he quoting there? Genesis. Genesis 1, and then he's going to go on to talk about Genesis 2, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It seems very plain to me that the question of homosexual relationships, and in particular homosexual marriage or gay marriage, is a creation issue. It's an origins issue. It's, it's a very foundational doctrine of what it means to be a Christian. And so we have to be very clear about that. Notice how Jesus himself goes right back to Genesis. And that's why we spent a whole year in Genesis when we started this class, because all roads start in Genesis. It is. But he's still defining God's ideal of marriage and what that is. And we can talk about, as I said at the end of last week's message, we can talk about our brokenness after the fall. We can talk about how we've corrupted marriage, right? We can talk about polygamy. We can talk about uh, rampant divorce. But those are all results of the fall. What Jesus is going back to is pre-fall, before the fall. What was God's ideal? How did he set it up in the beginning? He set it up as one man and one woman for a lifetime. Now, again, after the fall, things happen, right? We engage in all kinds of brokenness and distortion about sexuality and human relationships, And so you're right to point that out, Sally, that the context is about divorce, but he's also going right back to Genesis and saying, let me pull you back to what's foundational. One man and one woman becoming one flesh for the rest of their lives. That's the ideal, and that's the way that he set it up. Now, Jesus explains creation's intent. He defines marriage as a monogamous, permanent, heterosexual union. I would also point out 
to the revisionist that this was the perfect opportunity for Jesus to correct the misunderstanding of marriage and that it included gay marriage. He could have said, you have heard it said that man shall not lie with a man, but I say unto you. This was the perfect moment to offer a change, a revision, a new understanding, a new revelation. But notice that Jesus does not do that. He just takes people back to the beginning and restates uh, the Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 understanding of male-female relationships and marriage. Another response that I would have for the, the revisionist is that Well, Jesus also doesn't explicitly condemn witchcraft, incest, bestiality, or spousal abuse. Would you advocate that those behaviors are okay? There are many things that Jesus did not condemn. Now, why did he not condemn them? Well, let's think about this a minute. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. So what is his background? The law. law. He doesn't need to restate everything that he's already stated in the law. And as we said it last week, when we looked at the Old Testament, some of us need to clean up our wording a little bit when we say the phrase that the Mosaic law is irrelevant to us. We want to say something not like that. That the Mosaic law represents, excuse me, represents universal transcultural ideals of God's morality in a cultural expression to that particular people. So it's not that the ideals have changed. It's that sometimes the expression of them has changed. But in particular, in Leviticus 18 and 20, all of, many of these sins have to do with sexual, of a sexual nature. That's the immediate surrounding context. And Jesus doesn't individually um, Condemn all of those. What does Jesus do? He has a shorthand way of says, you know what? If you've lusted inappropriately, you've committed adultery in your heart. He, he doesn't need to explain incest is wrong. Bestiality is wrong. It's like it's all in his background. It's understood. He, everyone knows that. It ha- they all have that common assumption. Let's move on to Romans chapter 1 and give that a little bit more time because it is a more uh, detailed passage. Now, in Romans chapter 1, Paul is laying out a legal argument that no one is righteous. And that's chapters 1 to 3 of Romans. And what Paul is trying to say to the Roman church is that, look, you who have a Jewish background, you think you're better than the Gentiles. You think you're a little less sinful, a little less dirty, and a little more righteous. So he starts off with this argument in chapter 1 that basically all Gentiles that don't have revelation from God have all sinned. But then when he switches to chapter 2, he's like, and you too, Jews, you're just as bad, right? And then in chapter 3, just in case we're still confused, he goes into this very detailed argument of there is no one righteous, no, not even one that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So we have to understand the big context of Romans chapter 1 is really focused on Gentile sin and what the, the world of Gentiles or people without God's revelation 
looks like. And Paul is painting this picture. And Gentiles are unrighteous in Romans chapter 1, that he paints them as unrighteous and that they have removed themselves from the authority of their creator. This is foundational. Again, homosexuality is a creation issue. It is an origins issue. All roads lead us back to Genesis. And Paul is using that foundation for the background of Romans chapter 1. And he says that basically they have shut themselves off from the creator. So let's quickly look at Romans chapter 1, verse, starting at verse 18. He says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what has been made known, what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. What Paul is laying out here is what we call in theology a natural law argument or a creation argument. He's saying if you just look at creation and look at how God has set things up, you can kind of know how they work. And as we said last week, the anatomy of male and male and female and female does not work. You cannot get one flesh. You cannot get a family from two men or two women. And Paul is laying out here a natural law argument based on Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And he's saying that which... uh, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. In other words, you know this. If you just look at a man and a woman, you know how this works. It's called a natural law argument. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to to him, but their thinking became, what? Futile. Their foolish hearts were, what? Darkened. Although they claimed to be wise... They became what? Fools. And exchanged, this is important, what did they exchange? The glory of the immortal God for images. Made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. So they knew the real true God on some level. But they exchanged that knowledge for foolishness, darkness in their heart. And their thinking became futile. So what happens when we get embroiled in our sins? Our thinking becomes confused, doesn't it? If any of us haven't been involved in a relationship that's outside of God's will, you know that part of that formula is your thinking becomes confused, right? If you're fornicating with your boyfriend or your girlfriend, your thinking becomes confused, you try to engage in justifications. You lie to your parents. You, you do all kinds of gymnastics to try to cover up your actions, don't you? If you're involved in an adulterous relationship, your thinking becomes confused. This is not a difficult concept. To me, this is just as self-evident as the air we breathe. That we, when we engage in sins, our hearts become darkened and our thinking becomes confused. And then what do we want to do? We want to enroll people in our new reality. That everything's okay. Nothing to see here. Move along. <laughs> right? 
These are not the drones you're looking for. This is what we do when we are engaged in a habitual pattern of sin. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. Whatever it is, whatever our favorite sin is, we enroll people in a story of nothing is wrong. I've got it all under control. Right? This is what we do. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. There's that word again of exchanging. So they have the truth, but now they've exchanged that for a lie. And what is that lie? Well, part of it we've already seen. They've exchanged the glory of God for images, false worship. And worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. See, this is, a, this is a creation problem. We have come into a place of rebellion against the creator. We're saying, this is not how you made me. You don't know what's best for me. And so we've exchanged the truth of that for a lie. Because of this, God gave them over. Again with that phrase, God gave them over. That's the second time we've heard that. God gave them over not only to false worship, he gives them over to what? Shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, men also abandoned their natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Furthermore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over. There's the third time we've had that phrase. To a what? Depraved mind. See, this is, are you starting to get the picture here? Something happens inside of us when we engage in habitual sin, especially sexual sin that is outside of God's ideal and the way that he set things up. Something happens to our mind and our heart and our will that we get way off course. To a depraved mind to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of, now this is a very difficult list. Every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They invent ways of doing evil. Wow. They disobey their parents. They are senseless, senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And although they know God's righteous decree, there's that same phrase again. They know something. They uh, decree that those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these very things, but they approve of those who practice them. I cannot imagine a better invitation, description of the invitation in our culture right now. They are inviting us to approve of this type of lifestyle. Yeah, so the way I take that is very similar to what happened with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. That he made certain decisions to not let God's people go, not let them go, not let them go. And then there's a phrase in there that says, uh, then God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So if we harden our hearts repeatedly against God's laws, there comes a point where God will turn us over to our lusts. 
he will turn us. He says, okay, this is what you want. Have it your way. This is your free will. And he will let you go down a dark path. And the way that I picture this sometimes is Jesus is standing right there with the person. So that if any moment they want to turn back, they want to repent, they want to come back to the Lord. He's right there and he's ready and he's willing to be in relationship with them. And I think this is what God does. And there's another passage in Corinthians where Paul instructs the church to turn a sinner just over to their desires, turn them over to the enemy. But the hope is that they will go down the dark path. And as our cult, we say in our culture, they'll hit rock bottom. They'll come to their senses like the prodigal son and realize this is no way to live and want to come back. Okay, now let's look at Matthew Vines. We're going to look at a revisionist position on Romans 1, and we're going to play the first clip here. It's just a couple of minutes. And his exposition on Romans 1, and so listen carefully to how he's going to try to get out of this. The idolaters are without excuse because they knew the truth. They started with the truth, but they rejected it. Paul's subsequent statements about sexual behavior follow this same pattern. The women, he says, exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, and the men abandoned relations with women and committed shameful acts with other men. Both the men and the women started with heterosexuality. They were naturally disposed to it, just as they were naturally disposed to the knowledge of God. But they rejected their original, natural inclinations for those that were unnatural. For them, same-sex behavior. Paul's argument about idolatry requires that there be an exchange. The reason, he says, that the idolaters are at fault is because they first knew God, but then turned away from him, exchanged him for idols. Paul's reference to same-sex behavior is intended to illustrate this larger sin of idolatry. But in order for this analogy to have any force, in order for it to make sense within this argument, the people he is describing must naturally begin with heterosexual relations and then abandon them. And that is exactly how he describes it. But that is not what we are talking about. Gay people have a natural, permanent orientation toward those of the same sex. It's not something that they choose, and it's not something that they can change. They aren't abandoning or rejecting heterosexuality. That's never an option for them to begin with. And if applied to gay people, Paul's argument here should actually work in the other direction. If the point of this passage is to rebuke those who have spurned their true nature, be it religious when it comes to idolatry or sexual, then just as those who are naturally heterosexual should not be with those of the same sex, so too those who have a natural orientation toward the same sex should not be with those of the opposite sex. For them, that would be exchanging the natural for the unnatural in just the same way. We have different natures when it comes to sexual orientation. Okay, so what is his argument? If you were to summarize, a very critical skill to being a good student is knowing how to summarize other people's arguments. So how would you summarize his argument? What is he saying Romans 1 teaches? So his, I put this in purple, 
Uh, gay people have a natural permanent orientation, is what he says, to being gay. That's the very assertion that must be proven. This is what we call in logic begging the question. When you assume the conclusion. And so he's not offering an, an analysis of Romans 1 in an, its original context. Rather, he's taking his own assumption and then reading that into the passage as to what it means. So the sin that Paul is talking about there is, doesn't uh, apply to homosexuals. It only applies to heterosexual people who want to experiment with homosexuality. That's what Paul is condemning because they're going against their nature. But this is the very assertion that must be proven. Are, does this make sense? But can you see how he engages in this sort of exegetical shell game? Because it sounds like he's making a biblical argument. But you have to listen carefully. But this is the very thing that must be proven. Instead, what he does is he takes this assertion and then reads that into scripture. Paul is condemning, according to him, uh, heterosexuals who went against their natural desires and engaged in homosexual behavior. They were experimenting. What we're have engaged in right now is sort of, in my opinion, the extension of the 1960s and the sexual revolution. The seeds of all of that are what were planted, and this is the fruit, that we are now engaged in a project in our culture that I call sexual anarchy. So in the 60s and 70s, it was people fornicating and living together, and we don't need to get married, and we don't need a piece of paper to tell us that we're married. Well, why not just keep experimenting, and maybe we can experiment with same-sex relationships. He, Matthew Vines would say that is what Paul is condemning, the experimentation if your natural desire is for the opposite sex, but then you just kind of, and this is a fad right now, especially among college students, to experiment sexually with same-sex relationships. This is a very hip thing to do. This is what Matthew Vines would say is being condemned. But there's there's a couple more responses that gay apologists will engage in. Another approach they have to this passage is saying, well, Paul's condemning homosexuality that was part of temple rituals, not homosexuality per se. That what Paul is condemning here is the practice of temple prostitution and the engagement of older men with young boys, young teenage boys. And that is what is being uh, condemned. The problem with this view is that there's, there's really nothing about that in the context. Again, you would have to insert that into your reading of scripture have that as your presupposition and then read that into it. Number three, and a third um, response I've heard from gay apologists is, is Paul's instructions are not timeless, universal, or transcultural. They were a condemnation limited to that certain culture. This is the culturally bound argument. But what I think is interesting when you look at this is that this is a common tactic that you'll run into with people who advocate for the revisionist position is they don't have just one response. This is sort of like throwing spaghetti on the ceiling and seeing what sticks. And they have many ways that they try to get around this. And this is very common for all of these verses. And they will sometimes even make contradictory arguments 
they'll say they'll make be making one argument and Matthew Vines does this and I don't have time to like teach a debate class and go into all the details of what he does but there's several moments in this video where he spends five or six minutes talking making one point and then he'll go swim to another point and then he'll be contradicting what he just said but this is a very common tactic that they engage in and the, really the, their goal is to um, get around these these difficult verses and that's some of what they do okay the traditional response is again I kind of already stated this is the informal fallacy of begging the question now many people use the phrase begging the question in the wrong way in our culture this is this is my weekly plug for take a logic class begging the question is assuming what must be proven this is what we call this in logic and Vines assumes that sexual orientation is fixed and inborn, but that is the very assertion that must be proven. He said at the beginning of the video that that's what he hopes to prove. So he can't use his conclusion as part of his exege exegetical analysis of scripture. Another response I would have to this is that Romans 1, once again, points us back to the events of Genesis 1 and 2. This is an origins or a creation issue. A third point I would want to bring up is this. Aren't our natural urges the very thing that revisionist theologians say we should act upon because that's what comes naturally to us? That, that that's what we should do because that's my natural permanent orientation is to act upon my urges toward the same sex. That's what they're essentially telling me to do. And that that is a virtue, right? That that is, that is something that is noble if I act upon what is intrinsic to me, these natural urges. So then my question for the revisionist is this. Are you willing to say that Paul is arguing, well, murder is okay if that's what comes naturally to you? Just not if... It doesn't come naturally to you. Right. It's only, murder is only sin for you if it doesn't come naturally for you. Yeah. But if it comes naturally for you, then murder is okay. Do you see how in, in logic we call this using a, 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 arguing by a, analogy or an example? So you try to find another example and you say, well, is this what you're saying? And you can do it kindly and, and respectfully, but you do it in a form of a question and say, is if I were to follow the large logic of what you're saying, would this be true? Would Paul be saying that in this, this list of vices in verses, starting in verse 29, evil, greed, wickedness, depravity, envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, all of those, well, would those also be okay if we do them, if that's what comes naturally to us? Well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense to us, does it? But that would be a, a counterexample of their argument. Another way of saying this, are you willing to say that pedophilia or drunkenness comes, comes naturally to some people? I mean, we make the argument in our culture regularly that, well, alcoholism is a genetic condition. And this is just people doing what comes naturally to them. Well, how dare we condemn them for doing what comes naturally to them? 
And because it comes naturally to some people and they were born that way, should we not inhibit them? Should we not have 12-step programs to help people overcome their addictions? Should we not have conversations about the impact of their hurtful behavior on their family members? I don't know if any of you have had an alcoholic in your family. It's not a fun time. It's, it's a never-ending series of complicated and painful conversations as you figure out an endless chain of moral dilemmas of how to, how to deal with the alcoholic in your family. Right? But should we, should we, are we intending to say that we shouldn't condemn them, we shouldn't have those conversations, we shouldn't talk about recovery as being noble and virtuous? Because they're just doing what comes naturally to them. I don't think that's what we want to say. So these are some questions that we can ask to help sharpen the thinking of people who have been influenced by revisionist theology. Doing what comes naturally to you is not necessarily a virtuous thing in the Christian worldview, right? I mean, isn't one of the major premises of the Christian worldview that our feelings, our urges, our thoughts, our desires are not necessarily good, right, or Holy Spirit controlled? We talked the first week about the need to kill our flesh a little bit more every day and to invite the Holy Spirit to transform us in whatever realm our favorite sin is. The Bible seems to have a lot of things to say about killing our urges, ignoring our urges, not obeying our urges to fornicate, to commit adultery, to look at porn, to overeat, whatever our favorite sin is. How many of us still have areas of our life where we need to control our urges? We need to control what comes naturally to us. I have big problems with the sin of covetousness. It is a sin that I deal with a lot. I have a lot of ministry jealousy. It's one of my favorite sins. I'm, I'm constantly repenting of my ministry jealousy that other people have more exposure, bigger ministries, a bigger voice. And it is a hard road for me. And I'm constantly trying to put my jealousy to death. A little more every day, God helping me. And Facebook doesn't help much. Facebook is the biggest instigator of, the, of me disobeying the 10th commandment that there is. It, it, it instigates me to be jealous of other people's perfect families, perfect existences, perfect realities, and their ministry. But that is part of my favorite sin, and I'm just being vulnerable. That is something that I struggle with on almost a daily basis. And when I have those thoughts, those lusts, after the success of what other people enjoy in their ministry. That is my idol that I can exchange for God's truth, that he has me in my own lane. He brings the people to me that he wants to bring. That's God's truth. The enemy's enticing lie is you could have so much more. Isn't that the same lie as in the garden? See, this is a creation issue. This is an origins issue in finding our contentment in God's design for our soul. So I'm not persuaded at all by the argument that I should, it is a virtue to do what comes naturally to me. This is not a persuasive argument for me. But I think that many of us are not in touch with our favorite sins enough to know, like, 
we, you know what phraseology we use for doing what comes naturally to us is, that's just the way I am. That's what we say. We're doing what comes naturally to us. We're, in, 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 you know, we're engaged in, in a fit of rage. Well, that's just how I am. That's our favorite sin. So, again, we're not trying to just single out homosexuality here. We're trying to turn the mirror on ourselves and, and see that these principles apply to us, to us as well. Also, another response is that there's no contingency in Paul's argument that would allow for the other sins mentioned, starting in verse 29, in the near context, to be okay under certain circumstances. You can't have it both ways. You can't tell me that in the first part of the chapter, homosexuality is okay under certain circumstances, but then murder isn't okay under certain circumstances. Do you see the contradiction there? You can't have it both ways. Paul says that the men burned with lust for other men. So here's a question I have for you, Mr. Revisionist. If Paul was going to condemn homosexuality, how would he do that? What words would he use to actually condemn homosexuality as we currently conceive of it? I can't think of another way that he would do it other than the way that it's stated in this text. But I could ask the revisionist, well, let's just say hypothetically that Paul wanted to condemn homosexuality. How would he do that? What words would he use? I think that's a fair question. Now let's move to our final two passages. And we're going to handle these two together because they're very similar to each other. And this is 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the immoral, and there the word is pornos, from where we get the word porn, the immoral, nor the idolaters, nor adulterers. And then if you're using the NIV, it does something interesting. Uh, It leaves out a word. There's actually a word in Greek there, malakos, which means effeminate men, nor homosexuals, which is arsenikoites, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor robbers shall inherit the kingdom of God. And notice he uses that phrase, shall not inherit the kingdom of God twice. It's sort of the bookends. Similar passage in 1 Timothy chapter 1. He says, Now, we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and the disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral who practice homosexuality. And there's that word again, arsenikoite, related to arsenikoites. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And notice that these lists are all very similar. They have similar, what we call vice, vices listed there. And I think it's interesting that uh, being disobedient to parents is, is one of them. Uh, it appears in two of the lists. But these are, um, this word, arsenikoitai, 
or arsenicoites, I want to spend a little bit of time thinking about this word. So we're going to first watch another clip from Mr. Matthew Vines, where he's going to talk about this term. The word translated as abusers of themselves with mankind in the King James is a compound word. In the Greek, it is arsenicoites, arsen meaning male and koites meaning bed, generally with a sexual connotation. And so the argument is that we can determine the meaning of this term from its etymology. Male plus bed in the plural form must then refer to men who sleep with other men. But there are several problems with this approach. First, simply looking at a word's component parts doesn't necessarily tell us what it means. There are many English words where this approach would fail. For example, the words understand, butterfly, honeymoon. The component parts here, honey and moon, really don't tell us anything about that, what that word actually means. In order to understand what a word means, you have to consider how it's used in context. The problem with the word abusers of themselves with mankind, arsenicoites, is that it was used extremely rarely in ancient Greek. In fact, Paul's use of it in 1 Corinthians is considered to be its first recorded use anywhere. And after Paul, the few places that it appears tend to be in lists of general vices, which are not the most helpful of contexts. Fortunately, however, many of these lists are grouped by category. And this Greek word consistently appears among sins that are of a primarily economic nature rather than those that are primarily sexual. This and some other contextual data indicate that this term referred to some kind of economic exploitation, likely through sexual means. This may have involved forms of same-sex behavior, but coercive and exploitative forms. There is no contextual support for linking this term to loving, faithful relationships. So his argument is that it's a compound word. It, it takes the word for males and bed, and then from that we get the word homosexual. And he's saying, well, that doesn't prove anything because we have these compound words in, in English, and they don't give us any insight as to what a, a butterfly is or un, a honeymoon or understand, right? But did you notice that he never actually went back and defined what arsenicoites meant? He just told us what it couldn't be. He never went back and said what it is. And then he makes another assertion that, well, this list must refer to ex economic exploitation through sex. So his first response is Paul made up a compound word for which the meaning is unclear. But we know he's not condemning modern homosexual practices that are loving. The list is primarily focused on economic exploitation through sex. It has, again, nothing to do with modern concepts of loving homosexual relationships. So let's look at the traditional response. Okay, this assertion that economic exploitation through sexual means, to me, this just seems like an overstatement. I mean, if we just look at these sins, some of them, yes, I guess you could say there's an economic component. There's the word greedy, swindlers. Those could have an economic component. But many of these have a sexual component. Um, oh, and there's the word thieves. That could have an economic component. But um, adulterers, male prostitutes, homosexual offenders. But then there's also idolaters. 
and there's drunkards, and there's slanderers. So this is a mixed list. I don't see that the theme of all of these vices is purely economic exploitation. Again, that is an assertion that has to be assumed first and then read into the text and is, is a rough fit in, in, in my honest opinion. Let's talk more about this word arsenokoitai. Yes, Matthew Vines is correct. Arsenos and koitain is the foundation for this word. And it is correct that Paul seems to be the only one who uses this word. It, many scholars think that Paul actually kind of invented this word because this is the, probably the earliest usage of this word. Um, but there's an important context here to what Paul is saying. Paul is a Jewish rabbi. Now, who remembers from our conversation about the canon, what, what version of scripture did the early church, the apostles, use? Septuagint. Very good. It was the Greek translation. This is an important background to the term arsenokoite. It is a compound word. You can see there, we looked at Leviticus 18 and 20 last time. But this word, it comes from koitain, which is part of when it says, you shall not lie, with a male, arsenos. Now, in Greek, not Hebrew, but in Greek, because we're talking about the Septuagint right now. So even though this is Old Testament, we're talking about Greek. Arsenos is different than the word anthropos. Anthropos can mean either men or women. Arsenos can only mean men. So what Leviticus is saying is you shall not lie in a bed with a man as you would with a woman. Men don't lie in beds with other men as they lie in beds with women, is what it's saying, in Le both in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20. So I would say that, going back to this statement, this is kind of a summary of what it is, is what Paul is talking about here is what men normally do with women, but they're doing with men in a bed, and it ain't eating crackers. Okay? That's not what they're doing. So let's be clear. I don't think it takes a lot of imagination to know what Paul is talking about here. What men normally do with women in a bed, but they're doing it with other men. Arsenokoitai, that is the, the, to me, just the fundamentally clear meaning of what that word means, especially if you know that, that Paul is a Jewish rabbi and he was using the Septuagint as the background, and he's got Leviticus 18 and 20 as part of his understanding of his worldview, and he's merging these two words together as sort of a shorthand way that he knows that his readers are going to understand you don't do this. Now, some of us uh, are younger than others. And we can remember times when our parents told us something, and there were some things our parents told us, and they only ever told us once, and we knew they meant business. They didn't need to repeat it 45 times. We knew in their, by their tone of voice, don't do this. Right? I think that that is pretty clear from what's happening in the Mosaic Law. God is, made, is having kind of that conversation with that child and saying, these are the things you shouldn't do. He's not going to keep repeating himself about bestiality, incest, 
witchcraft, fornication, homosexuality. He only needs to say it a couple of times because his people know, I mean business. Don't do this. Your life will end in ruin. It will pollute the land. It will pollute your soul. Don't do this. And Paul has that in his background as a Jewish rabbi. And I think that that is an important point because Paul's primary cultural context is that of Judaism. It's not the Greco-Roman culture. It's Judaism. And you'll hear in Matthew Vine's talk and other parts of it where he constantly is talking about Greco-Roman culture. And my rejoinder to that is that's not Paul's culture. Paul's culture is Second Temple Judaism. If you go 100 years, 200 years in either direction, forward and backward, you're not going to find one Jewish scholar who ever has understood that there is some homosexual loophole in the Mosaic Law. It was the universal interpretation, and that is the cultural milieu that Paul comes from. It's only in the last 50 years or so that now we're going to start talking about well, maybe Paul didn't really know what he was talking about, or maybe he was more influenced by Greco-Roman culture. No, he was a Jewish rabbi. He was a rabbi of rabbis, right? So we have to understand that worldview coming into it to understand Paul. Notice in 1 Corinthians 6.11 that Paul points out that some in the church in Corinth used to engage in homosexual, homosexual behavior, but now they don't. And Matthew Vines doesn't read verse 11 again. He stops at a critical verse. We saw this in Ezekiel. Paul says, and that is what some of you, what? Were. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of our God. To say that this is what some of you were is a participle. It's that they were having an active, ongoing lifestyle. They were walking in this way, but they no longer are. This is going to be a critical part of our conversation next week. Again, you could also imply the same questions we had before about Romans 1 is to the, to the revisionist apologist. Well, are you suggesting that, that if people are doing what comes naturally, and that is what is a virtue, that, it's, that adultery is okay under certain circumstances? Do you want to advocate for that position too? Are we, are we wanting to advocate for drunkenness or greediness or thievery? We can't just call one sin cultural and then ignore the rest. These are all bound up together as a list. Do you see that? And so what Paul is saying here is that if you walk in this way, if you walk in a habitual way of walking in these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. He's not talking about people that just sin occasionally and and we all have faults and we all make mistakes. He's talking about people who are walking in a lifestyle of habitual greediness, habitual thievery, habitual drunkenness that when you walk like that you're not walking as a child of God ought to walk 
And part of what it means to be in the kingdom of God is not just to say the sinner's prayer and have a simple, simple prayer and that's it. The, the sinner's prayer is a gateway to a whole lifestyle. And that's the part of it that I think that in evangelical churches today, we are not being clear about at all. That we're not just simply inviting people to say a prayer. We're inviting people to a whole different way of being. We're inviting people to freedom. As I said last week, Jesus didn't just die for your sins. He died to set you free from your sins. Those are two very different things. When all else fails... So I'm, I've just noticed, I, I have spent many, 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 many hours the last two weeks watching uh, revisionist theologians on YouTube uh, because I love you. And I started noticing some things that once their arguments were answered, once their exegetical analysis was answered, they had one of two responses or both of these responses. They would either engage in what we call in logic, the appeal to pity or the appeal to personal experience. When they run out of arguments, this is what to listen for, is the appeal to pity or the appeal to experience. Now, the appeal to pity is very powerful in our culture right now, especially if you're under the age of 40. We hear the appeal to pity all the time, and it is compelling, and we call it empathy now. And we think that the appeal to pity is, a, is, a, is an argument for truth. And I'm here to tell you that the appeal to pity is not an argument for truth. As I said last week, I am making the case for an objective moral standard, that there are furniture in the universe that is just as real as this water bottle, that there are moral laws that exist in the universe that are objectively true, whether or not we agree, we agree with them or not, no matter how we feel about them, but they're just true. And they're part of the, the reflection of the nature of God. They're part of his character. And so when he's giving us moral instructions, there's something in his moral character that those instructions are an extension of. And he wants us to come into conformity with the image of his son. And so part of that is us mirroring his moral character. Are you with me? And this is a very important concept. But in our culture, we feel sorry for people. And we make decisions about truth based on pity. And this is a problem because pity in logic does not have anything to do with truth. Something can be true or false regardless of how I feel about it. And so the appeal to pity is something, again, in, I would encourage you to take a logic class and you can learn more about these things. But this is a very common appeal when people run out of arguments is they either call us names we're homophobic. That's the ad hominem attack. That's the ad hominem fallacy. They appeal to pity or they appeal to their personal experience. And that's where the conversations are going to end up inevitably. So we're going to watch an example right now of the appeal to pity from our friend Matthew Vines. 
And this is a montage of appeals to pity that he makes throughout his video. I've never been in a relationship, and I've always believed in abstinence until marriage. But I also have a deeply rooted desire to one day be married, to share my life with someone, and to build a family of my own. But according to the traditional interpretation of scripture, as a Christian, I am uniquely excluded from that possibility for love, for companionship, and for family. But unlike someone who senses a calling from God to celibacy, or unlike a straight person who just can't find the right partner, I don't sense a special calling to celibacy. And I may well find someone I grow to love and would like to spend the rest of my life with. But if that were to happen, following the traditional interpretation, if I were to fall in love with someone, and if those feelings were reciprocated, my only choice would be to walk away, to break my heart, and retreat into isolation alone. But these arguments are always made by people who are themselves heterosexual, who have always fit in, who haven't endured years of internal torment and agony because they have a different sexual orientation than their friends, than their parents, than seemingly everyone else in the world. But those people, gay people, are just as much children of God and just as much a part of his creation as everyone else. And there's something terribly unseemly about straight Christians insisting that gay Christians are somehow inferior to them or broken, or that gay people only exist because of the fall, and that God really intended to make everyone straight like them. You are taking a few verses out of context and extracting from them an absolute condemnation that was never intended. But you are also striking to the very core of another human being and gutting them of their sense of dignity and of self-worth. You are reinforcing the message that gay people have heard for centuries. You will always be alone. You come from a family, but you'll never form one of your own. You are uniquely unworthy of loving and being loved by another person, and all because you're different, because you're gay. Being different is no crime. Being gay is not a sin. And for a gay person to desire and pursue love and marriage and family is no more selfish or sinful than when a straight person desires and pursues the very same things. The Song of Songs tells us that King Solomon's wedding day was the day his heart rejoiced to deny to a small minority of people, not just a wedding day, but a lifetime of love and commitment and family is to inflict on them a devastating level of hurt and anguish. This is a good example of the appeal to pity because it, it, I think it's very typical of what we're hearing in our culture right now. There, there's a lot of accusation. You know, you're, you're kind of relegating me to always be alone. 
And he says that numerous times in his video. And you're gutting these people of their self-worth and their dignity. And I am a child of God. I have just as much right to love family as anyone else, love family and marriage. But none of these are arguments that go toward establishing the truth claim. He hasn't proven his argument that gay marriage from scripture can be a holy union. Now he's just left with the appeal to pity. And this is what you will hear. And I want you to understand, I'm not trying to be ugly or um, uncaring. This is just a principle in logic. I don't want you to fall into the appeal of pity either. When you're arguing your case with somebody, don't make the appeal to pity. That's a, that's a fallacy in logic. And that's not how we ought to argue. But we it see this. The no, it doesn't. Yeah, and it's in politics, it's, it's pervasive in our culture that we make moral choices based on pity. And this, this is not, I think, in keeping with the historic Christian worldview. The second approach that I see is the appeal to personal testimony. And this is a highly subjective argument. Now, I want to make the caveat here that subjective doesn't, isn't inherently bad. But anything that we believe subjectively ought to be cooperated with scripture. That's how we know that it's, our experience is, is true and accurate, right? So hey, I'm all for like praying and hearing from the Lord and getting direction and wanting to ascertain God's will for my life. Those are, I'm not berating that at all. And those are all subjective experiences. But I can tell you that my expectation is when the Lord's communicating with me, it's going to it's going to conform to what God has already revealed in Scripture. He's not going to all of a sudden tell me, hey, it's okay to commit adultery. Be at peace with that. I'm all for subjective religious experiences, but they have to cooperate with Scripture. They cannot contradict the Scripture. This is an important point. Um, there was a longer clip I really wanted to play, but we would be here for so long. So I'm going to do this short clip with Barry Lynn. He's an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ, the UCC, which in my opinion is the most liberal Protestant denomination that there is. And uh, it's a debate with James White. If you really want to get, uh, see some good debates on YouTube on this issue, uh, watch James White debate these guys. He has several of them where he debates gay apologists, and he does a very fine job. Um, he, now he wrote um, uh, the same-sex controversy. He's a, he advocates for the traditional position. He's a very able apologist on this issue. So we're going to watch this short clip between James White, who's bald. He's the traditional guy against Barry Lynn, who you might have seen on Fox News. He's always on there representing the uh, separation of church and state people. Do you receive revelations from the Holy Spirit? Yes. Do you believe that your revelations are equal with uh, what Paul says in Romans 1? I have no idea if they're psychologically equal. I only know that they change my life as they change the life of other people. And indeed on these, ver on these very issues. Because if you were talking to me 30 years ago, I would be in total agreement with everything you said and everything that I know that you have said on other controversial topics within the church, including abortion.
But it is through prayer, through study, through personal experience of the other, of other people, that I believe my heart has been changed. And that I have to declare to be authentic. I have to declare it authentic. Whether it's the same as Paul's, I am unable to answer that question. Is there such a thing as an inauthentic spiritual experience? Uh, well, it can be inauthentically Christian. That is to say that I believe that there are people who have spiritual experiences who, are, who claim uh, contact with the dead. They believe it to be spiritual. I don't think it's authentic Christian spiritual experience, but I think uh, it, it, is, it is fair for them to call it spiritual. By it's just not Christian. By what standard, sir, would you judge any spiritual experience? Well, I mean, one has see, I believe that one has to be honest with not only the criticisms that you would levy against people who say sin is not sin and go and, and engage in it, but I think we have to give more credit to the individual practicing Christian than I believe you are willing to give them. That if someone says, through prayerful communion with Jesus Christ, with God through Jesus Christ. I have changed my mind. I have changed my heart. It is very difficult for me to sit as an outsider in Arizona or Washington, D.C. or anywhere else and dare to say their experience of God is inauthentic, Was particularly when they describe it within the context of a fundamental respect for Scripture, even though they may say, as I do, Scripture is not sufficient for the task of full understanding because, among other things, because some of, some of what Jesus says when he talks about the Holy Spirit clearly implies that some of the teachings to come, he doesn't say come at the time the canon is established, he doesn't know this is coming. He says some things are too heavy for you to bear. And I think it is extraordinarily difficult to get through these texts, get past these texts, and still be able to look at an, a person who claims to be an authentic Christian and say, I am willing to accept the authenticity of your experience. That's very difficult for many of us. This is very typical of how they will argue, is that there is, um, that the spiritual experience, scripture is not sufficient to reveal these things. But rather my experience becomes, as we say in our culture, my personal truth, your truth, so that everybody runs around with their own little version of the truth, right? So I think that the, the question that James White asks is, by what standard do we judge spiritual experiences is a very important and perceptive question. And what I've learned this week, as people have been giving me feedback about this series, is that we, many of us, have especially the younger people, have, been, have bought into a view that my experience is more real than Scripture. And I shape my understanding of Scripture based on my personal experience. And this is the exact reversal of what the historic Christian position has been. Rather, Scripture ought to inform and explain my experience. And I hope the young people in the room are listening. If we allow our personal experience to shape how we interpret Scripture, we have 
gone outside the realm of Christian orthodoxy. Our spiritual experience cannot be the determiner of truth. It can be powerful. It can corroborate truth. It can be consistent with scripture. I'm not trying to negate the power of the Holy Spirit, but it must be consistent with what God has revealed in scripture. And if we depart from that, um, we have departed on some level outside the circle of orthodoxy. We have departed Christianity. And Barry Lynn, when he makes a statement that scripture is not sufficient to reveal these things, that is a huge red flag. Because then what makes up the difference? My personal experience, my cultural understanding, my current reality. So we have to be very clear on, on, on these matters as we move forward. The conclusions is that the consistent thread throughout the canon of scripture is that God's ideal definition of marriage consists of one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That is the consistent thread of scripture. There was a great clip that I did not play where James White asks a gay apologist, would you agree with me that there is no passage in scripture that you can point to that advocates the positive case for gay marriage? And he says, yeah, I would agree with that. I thought it was a very honest moment. The consistent thread throughout the canon of scripture is that homosexual sex is a passion of the flesh that must be put to death in the life of the Christian. In order to get around this, you have to engage in what theologians call the atomization of the text, where you get around each text individually rather than forming a coherent canonical doctrine. So it would be like me just ripping out pages of my Bible, cutting out those particular passages, that's the atomization of the text. We look at it as atoms. We look at, we don't look at the whole, we look at the parts. And if you notice that Matthew Vines and, and the other gay apologists cannot form a coherent, alternative, hermeneutical framework for the entire scriptures. What they do is they engage in atomization. They attack these six passages. They try to explain their way around them. And then they say, see, there goes the case for traditional marriage. This is not a coherent way of doing theology. This is a violation of the biblical text. If we're going to have an alternative strategy, we must demonstrate that there is some foundation for that in church history. And then it, per, it forms a coherent framework throughout scripture. The gay apologist does not do that. And as I said last week, you can squeeze scripture hard enough. If you squeeze scripture hard enough, you can make it say almost anything. Yeah. But you have to form a coherent overall framework that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And I think the only framework that makes any sense is that marriage consists of one man, one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. That is the, the assumption and the framework of scripture. So here's your homework. If you want to engage in it, you can read the next chapter in 
without a doubt about whether or not we're being intolerant homophobes. You can read my friend Ken Sample's work on that. There's a great short video by Dr. Robert Gagnon, who is a New Testament scholar, um, where he deals more with more on the Mosaic Law and the Christian's relationship to the Mosaic Law. It's a very good video. And then if you really want to dig into these matters deeper, I would recommend uh, Dr. Gagnon's verse, or book, uh, The Bible and Homosexual Practice, which in my opinion is the best book um, exegetically uh, and goes into all the historical and cultural issues on this question. All right, let's pray. Father, I just thank you. I thank you for the opportunity to speak to your people on these important issues of our time. Lord, please forgive me for any arrogance that I might project. It's something I'm very passionate about just because I, I, I actually think that ideas have consequences for people's lives. And I've seen how some people that I love fall into darkness, confused thinking, futile thinking. Lord, many of us have people that we know and love who are starting to fall into this futile thinking. Help us to be clear and shining lights. And now we're, we have some better information. We have some better questions. Help us to not be afraid, but to proclaim the truth and the power through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit to everyone we know. It really does change lives. In Jesus' name, amen.